All right, well, let's get rolling. Going old school today. No slides. Don't ask me why. Because I didn't want to. <laughs> How's that? Is that good enough reason? Talk to Barb after. It's... No. Anyway, I thought uh, this morning, unencumbered by slides, it would be a good idea. To be honest, sometimes I find them a bit of a restriction. Uh, anyway, my name is Gary Galland. I'm one of the elders here at the church. And uh, this morning, we are going to be starting out uh, a series over the summer on Galatians. And uh, Galatians is a really interesting book, or actually a letter, if you want to it is a book of the Bible, but it is more appropriately a letter. And uh, this morning we're going to do a bit of an introduction to it, and uh, we'll move along from there. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn to Galatians. It's the book right after 2 Corinthians. And uh, we're going to read this morning from verses 1 through 11, and I'm using the ESV uh, version. And so uh, once you read along with me. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. In other words, let him go to hell. Like, we're talking, this is not the typical letter of Paul, okay? As we have said before, and so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I just want to pray, and uh, I just want to hopefully somewhat accurately reflect what's in the text and, and to be able to bring the heart of it. So, Father, this morning, I'm trusting you. Uh, your word is alive. Your word is not just for the time of Galatia, but it's for now. It's for today in 2012. It's applicable uh, to us. And so, God, I pray this morning that I'd be able to, to bring your word truthfully and uh, without shame. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I think uh, we have, a, just, just for your, uh, when I get to it, I guess I cued, the, cued Aaron up with a, a map of Galatia, which we'll get to in a moment. So just to give you a warning, Aaron, that it's coming. But basically, just as an introduction to Galatians, <coughs> excuse me, the book was written by the Apostle Paul and by the, I guess, by the agreement of most uh, theologians written about 47 to 48 A.D. Uh, after Paul's second uh, missionary journey of church planting and, and uh, preaching the gospel. And so if you read along through the book of Acts, uh, you'll note that in Acts 15, uh, there is the council at Jerusalem. And at the council at Jerusalem... Uh, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, they argued and presented the case for the Gentiles not to have to come under the law uh, by circumcision. And it's thought that Galatians was written prior to that council because there's no, in, there's no reference to that council in the book of Galatians or in the letter of Galatians. And so it's written, they think, around 47 to 48 A.D., 
Jerusalem Council was late 48 to 49. Uh, Galatia, uh, you might wonder where it is, and so we've got a map here to show you, hopefully. There it is. Okay, so uh, if you take a look here, it's a bit of a, a zoom in, but at the top you see the Black Sea, and to the south of the Black Sea today, this would be Turkey. And so if you look uh, right in the, almost, I guess, the top left center, you'll see a, a city uh, in Cairo. Well, today that's um, the capital of Turkey, uh, in Cairo. And uh, so Galatia is basically where modern-day Turkey is. And, and um, Paul uh, was writing to the Galatians whose churches he helped to found, found with, uh, uh, with Barnabas. And so Galatia goes south down towards uh, Lyconia and uh, down through Pamphylia and all that area. That's all Galatia. And so to the south, you'll see the Mediterranean Sea, and there's Cyprus down there. And to the right, bottom right, you'll see Syria and Jerusalem south of there. And I think Tarsus is in uh, Cilicia, which is over on the, I guess, the bottom left. You'll see just uh, above from the Mediterranean, you'll see Tarsus, where Paul was from. And so gives you a picture of kind of where they were. And so he was writing this letter to Gentiles. These were Christians who uh, weren't originally Jewish. They came in uh, through his evangelistic efforts, and churches were established. And so the question when you read uh, a letter in the Scriptures needs to be, why is the letter written? These aren't just written with no purpose. There's There's a reason why. Uh, any of the letters of the New Testament are written, and there, this is no exception. And essentially, this letter, the book of or the letter of Galatians to the Galatians, was written as uh, a reaction to the proselytizing efforts of Jewish Christians uh, who were adding salvation, adding to salvation the requirement of circumcision. And so, essentially, what happened was at this time. Um, Paul and Barnabas had established a church. They had gone through and done two swaths of this area. They had uh, preached the gospel. Many people were saved. There were a lot of miracles. There was a lot of salvation. There was just a whole lot of happening going on in the spirit. And so many churches were established. They went through again, reinforced it. They appointed leadership in the churches. And then they moved, moved on to other things. Well, after they moved on, after the second journey, after the second go-round, there were a lot of well-intentioned but sincerely wrong Jewish Christians from the area down around Jerusalem who started to proselytize up through there, and basically they wanted to add to salvation the requirements of the law. And so they went about and basically started to infiltrate the churches um, soon after the, soon after Paul and Barnabas had left, and so they they had a window into the churches, and so their message had three main ideas to it. There were three main things that the Judaizing Christians uh, had when they went into these churches. The first and foremost thing was they, in order to have their message uh, have some ground in the churches, they discredited Paul as an apostle. So they would do this. Not even overtly, they would do it um, kind of subtly. They'd come in and they'd seek to discredit him, like, and they would refer to they would refer to his history as Saul. Remember, before he was a Christian, before he was saved by Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he was knocked off his horse and all that. You know that story, or maybe you don't, but he was saved radically uh, by a, a miraculous event. Prior to that, he was a persecutor of Christians, and so. What, they, what these uh, Judaizers did was they discredited him by telling people that, you know, you really can't trust him. It wasn't that long ago that he was killing you guys, that he was arresting you. And not only that, they would seek to further discredit him by saying, you know, he really wasn't a true apostle because, after all, he never really walked with Jesus. And so they, they attempted to discredit his apostleship because of the fact that he wasn't one of the twelve. That's not even a new thing today. We still have that happening today. We have people that will say that apostles don't exist today because they haven't walked with Jesus. 
But you'll know that in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, there are many people who were apostles who never walked with Jesus either. So it's not relegated just to those 12, although they are a special group. So the first thing was that they wanted to discredit Paul. Secondly, they had a fear of the message of grace. They had a fear of the message of grace because they believed that if people believed in grace, they believed mistakenly that if people believed in grace, then that gave them license to do whatever they wanted without any uh, regard for the holiness of God, without anything to do with, without any thought to, to uh, putting off the, the evil temptations of the world, the flesh and the devil and so on. So they, they basically were fearful of grace. They, were, they, they had a, they had a deep-rooted deep um, sense that if people believed in the message of grace, then they're going to run amok. And Paul actually speaks to that in Romans 6, 7, and 8. And he talks about not taking license to sin. He says, you know, if you're in, if you're in Christ, like, do, do, do you think that that's a license for you to do whatever you want? And Paul's argument would be that if you're in love with Jesus why, and, and you're destined for, to be spending eternity with Him, why would you want to overburden yourself and burden yourself with things that aren't going to profit you? Alan Rose talked about that a few weeks ago. And thirdly, so they wanted to discredit him. They had a fear of grace. And thirdly, they advocated uh, a specific program of legalistic observance. Um, and they taught the Galatians that they needed to follow that. So they discredited Paul, fear of grace. And what do they resort to? Imposition of rules. You've got to follow rules. Only one of Paul's, this is the only one of Paul's letters that doesn't follow the way that people wrote letters at the time. So there was a convention when people wrote letters. And so you see there's a definite form of letters, of letter writing back at that time. It's not just, not just something specific to the New Testament. They wrote letters and they followed a form. Just like today, we, you know, if you want to find out how to write a business letter, I usually just look online and, and find a template. And, and, okay, that's the business form. And the business form of a letter, you put your, your own address up here, and then you, do, you put another person's address over there, and then you put a salutation, and it has to be a certain kind of salutation. And the first bit of your business letter has to say generally a few different things, and then you have the main body of the letter. And at the end of the letter, you close it off, and you recap what's in there, and then you put a, a goodbye at the end. Right? And then there's a different form for writing a personal letter. Although probably not too many people in this room still write personal letters, uh, there is a form for it. We usually just write email and spell everything wrong and make sure everybody else is mad because we can't express ourselves with tone and atmosphere. Oops, sorry. I don't like email very much. I use it, but sparingly. But there is a form that's a, that was an accepted convention at the time and Paul, and this is the only one of the, his letters, that he does this. It starts out, he has the opening, and typically there will be a, uh, you know, he'll say Paul, this is, in this case, Paul, an apostle, you know, and he'll go through. And then he'll have, typically, a thanksgiving prayer, or a thanksgiving, a uh, couple of sentences of thanks, thanksgiving, and then he'll get to the body of the letter. Well, because things were so bad in Galatia, he skips the Thanksgiving altogether. He dispenses with that. And what he does is he gets right to the heart of the matter um, in this letter. And through six chapters and 149 verses of the book of Galatians, you find Paul writing with a great deal of passion, right from about verse 6, a great deal of passion, a great deal of sarcasm, and a great deal of anger. I'm not going to give away some of the key points of sarcasm because in the coming weeks, I'm sure somebody will do that. It's almost tempting to, but I won't because I won't steal someone else's thunder. But there's some classics in the book of Galatians. He gets right to the point. He's gravely concerned for the eternal health of, of the Galatians. These are people he loved. These are people that he spent time with. He spent you know months and years with these people. And all of a sudden, as he leaves, the wolves in sheep's clothing come in and attempt to destroy everything that Paul established from God. 
And so he is he's genuinely astonished and perplexed uh, by their departure from the truth so quickly after uh, his, his, his establishing those churches. In fact, in, uh, in the Phillips translation, it's not one that uh, we use very much today, but it's actually quite an interesting translation of the Bible back from the earlier part of the 20th century. In Galatians chapter 3, uh, Paul says uh, in the ESV something like, um, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You heard that one before? You foolish Galatians. I love the way uh, J.B. Phillips says this. He says, my dear idiots. <laughs> he loves them, but they're being dumb. So why would the Galatians be susceptible? Why would the Galatians be susceptible to this new gospel? Which isn't, as Paul says, not even a gospel. Gospel is good news. I don't think circumcision fits under the category of good news. Personally, I I would have to probably guess that that's not good news. But number one, they're relatively new to the faith. They're relatively new to the faith. They don't have a history. They don't have a history in God. They're relatively new to the faith. And so therefore, because they're new, what possibly could happen? Well, they, they may not know the ins and outs, of the history, the Jewish history, right? They may not know the complete promise of the Old Testament. You know, they, they may have been told it by Paul, and they certainly were, but it wasn't part of who they were. It was something that they, they took on and believed. And so, first of all, they were new to the faith. Secondly, they were fearful. They were afraid because they didn't want to be wrong. They didn't want to be wrong, so they came. these other guys came in with, with compelling arguments, and because they sounded like they knew what they were talking about, they believed them. So they were they were ripe for the picking. They were ripe for the picking. And thirdly, and this just goes to the human condition, the human tendency, even though Paul talked about, you know, being alive in Christ and you're in Him and all that's Christ is ours and we have relationship with the Father. And I can just imagine that Paul was, you know, when he spent time with them, he was, he was talking with them about, about the importance of, of just having a relationship with Jesus and fostering that relationship with Jesus and knowing that you have, uh, you have the ability to, to spend time with Him. You know, they don't have, no one would have to have asked them, do they believe in, in, in God? Because they say, yeah, well, I met with Him this morning. Right? So they had this sense of personal relationship. They had the sense of being alive in Christ. They had seen the miracles of God. And, and in, in, in the book of Galatians, Paul later on references as, you know, like, did you receive, did you receive the, the, the things of the Spirit? I mean, by following the law? Or like, like, there were all kinds of miracles done around you? So they knew all these things. But when the cat's away, what happens is these guys come in. And they start talking about rules. And like I said, going to the human condition, it's the human condition to go towards rules rather than relationship. That's what we do by default. We want to be told what to do. Especially when the chips are down, it's much easier to have somebody to come in and tell you what to do than you to pursue the relationship. Especially when it comes to the things of God. Did you ever wonder why legalistic uh, churches and denominations do well? There are a number of reasons, but one of them is is that part of the human tendency is we want to be told what to do. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. So the letter, um, you know, or sorry, the the next question that I asked myself is what happened to them afterwards? So what happened to them afterwards? So things are pretty dire here. Paul's, you know, he's like really concerned and he's uptight and he's, you know, he's, he's tearing a strip off them, really. And, uh, you know, he's, he's trying to snap them into reality. What happened to them afterwards? Did they accept what Paul said or did they go the way of the Judaizers? And I think it's pretty clear. And it seems like to me, if you read Acts 15 at the Council of Jerusalem, it seems as if that there were some uh, measures taken to make sure that the gospel that would be preached in this area and in other areas to the Gentiles would be one that would emphasize the fact that you can't add anything to salvation. 
Salvation is salvation. It's by faith in Christ alone, and you don't add anything to it. You don't add anything to it. So today, it would be crazy for us to suggest that, that, that people would have to be circumcised, men would have to be circumcised in order to be believers. That would be crazy. But we do add things to the gospel today. We do add things. You just take a look at our, our circumstances in the, in, the, in the North American church. You know, we do add rules and regulations to things. They may not be Jewish customs, you know, but there's an expectation of certain things. You know, how do you read your Bible? How long? How much? How much have you prayed today? And before you know it, we start taking on uh, other things. And if you were to ask ourselves, you know, if we were to ask, if you were to be honest, we would ask, you know, do these things save you? You'd say no, but our practice betrays what we think. Right? So the letter can be broken down into three categories. So this is a bit of an introduction, I know, but you have to bear with me. But I think it's important to lay a foundation. Otherwise, just you don't have a context. It's difficult, right? So first of all, chapters 1 and 2, Paul basically gives us the history uh, of the foundation of the gospel that he taught in that area. So in the first couple chapters, he's going to do that. Now, I'm not going to read those chapters today. We're just going to about verse 10 or 11 or so. But essentially, he, in the first couple of chapters, establishes the foundation of the history of salvation, the gospel he taught, and uh, now that needs to be defended. So he taught a gospel, the gospel of Jesus. There are all kinds of gospels, you know. Gospel is not a, a New Testament word. There were a lot of different, quote-unquote, little g gospels being taught. A lot of them were pagan. There were some that were Roman political gospels. I mean, Caesar touted himself, any of the Caesars touted themselves as, as being God, right? And so you wanted to live happy and uh, live forever and so on and so forth, you believed in Caesar. There's a gospel. But it's not really a gospel at all, according to Paul and according to us. So first, Paul talks about the history of the gospel that he taught and now defending it. Secondly, chapters 3 and 4, basically Paul focuses on the theology focuses on theology, the doctrinal core of the book is here in chapters 3 and 4. And so he unfolds the faith in relation to the promise of the Old Testament and how it's fulfilled in Jesus at, at the cross. And so he focuses on that. He says, you've got to get this. You've got to get this. Again, remember I said earlier, you know, did you, did you re- receive the things of the Spirit by following the law? Well, no. The law doesn't get you closer to God. Following a bunch of rules doesn't do it for you. And the big mistake that the Judaizers made, of course, is the fact that they believed that the law would purify. And in the Old Testament, some Christians actually think that that's what the Old Testament teaches. It doesn't teach that at all. The Old Testament teaches salvation by faith. Abraham, what? It was counted to him as righteousness because he believed. So it wasn't that the law preserved and purified anybody. And thirdly, chapters 5 and 6, Paul talks about how we live things out or the ethical uh, implications of the theology. So history, what he, what he found it. Secondly, the belief of what it is that, that, that uh, you know, he was teaching. And thirdly, the ethics of it, like how does it get lived out? How do we live out our freedom in the gospel and how do we uh, do that so that the world around us knows that we're different? And as an extension of that, how we can be in relationship with one another. I get nervous when, when, when people are, are looking around for different things in churches. Well, they, they, this, this church over here is great because they got a, they got this program. And that church over there has these five programs. That's a better church. When actually... Those are things that people do. Now, they may be good churches. But really, it's about the relationships that we have with one another. That constitutes and denotes a church. So we are a local body of believers in the larger body of Christ who have relationship with one another. So this is the the microcosm of the larger piece right here. And the fact of the matter is, guess what? We're not always going to all get along with one another. 
We're not always going to agree on everything. But when the going gets tough, the tough stick around and work out relationship. Because it's very easy to just pick up your bags and go somewhere else. But what happens is you pick up the bags of broken relationship and you take them somewhere else to unpack and it all cycle starts one more time. So that's the introduction. Are we doing okay? I'm going to go through the, the, I have three points to make. Point number one, verse one, the gospel is not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So point number one, the gospel is a gospel of grace. I know that's overstating the obvious. But the reality of it is, is that this gospel of grace was not initiated uh, by, it didn't originate with a man. It didn't, uh, it wasn't mediated by a man. So even though Paul and Barnabas and all the others went through, it wasn't their gospel. It didn't start with them. It, it, it wasn't, you know, it, it didn't depend on their mediation at all. In other words, they weren't the go-between between the people and God the Father. The gospel is initiated by God himself. Sub-point number one. The gospel is initiated by God himself. He's the one it originates with. He's the one that, that provides the mediator, the mediator being Jesus. And so in this very first verse, we have uh, a beautiful, and it's an implied Trinitarian statement, Gord's not here, but Gord would like this. So it's by the Father, the Gospels by the Father, mediated through the Son in the Spirit. So later on in Galatians, that becomes quite clear. But this is a Gospel of grace. It's not earned. You can't get this. You can't do enough to get the gift of grace. Because if you had to do something to get a gift, it's not a gift, is it? Father's Day yesterday, or we celebrated Father's Day as a family yesterday, and um, I got a Father's Day card from Joel, and there was a gift in it. Well, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything to earn that gift. It was in there. So, but if I had to, if I had to beg and plead and prod him for it, is it a gift? It's not a gift. A gift is unmerited. A gift has nothing to do with what we've done or not done, for that matter. The gospel is grounded in the love of God the Father. Obvious again, right? So here we have this verse 1. Sometimes we can read these things so quickly we just miss the content. But the gospel is grounded in God's love. See, love is the motivation for salvation. Some people believe, and to be honest, I used to believe this, that... God loved me because of the cross. If it wasn't for the cross, God couldn't love me. But that's a wrong answer. Family feud. Eh, wrong answer. Survey says it's not to do, you know, the fact that God loves me has really little to do with God's love being established in me because of the cross. Not at all. It's because of his love the cross is provided. See the difference. And again, we read over these things sometimes. We read over these salutations in these letters, and it's very easy to, you know, you can pull so much of just a sentence. And third subpoint here is that the empathy uh, we experience in salvation, the empathy and sympathy of Jesus. He's our elder brother, it says in the Bible. That's awesome. We become children of God. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. We all become sons of God. Legally speaking, we're all sons of God, all of us. And Jesus is that, is that, wonderful, um, he's that wonderful Savior who empathizes. There's people here this morning that uh, I know are going through tough stuff. 
I know it. He sympathizes with you. But even more deeply empathizes with you. He knows every ounce of your pain. He knows every every aspect of what you're going through. And he understands you better than you understand yourself. In fact, as Adam so wonderfully last week talked about it, you know what? Jesus and his sympathy and empathy towards you trumps the accusatory language that pops up in your head saying you're not good enough, saying that it'll never be right, saying that it'll never be good again. His empathy and his sympathy for you trumps it. Because you see, Jesus experienced the same accusations as you. He was told he wasn't good enough. There are many things written in the, in the New Testament that aren't there. It says that if, if all the things that were written, all the things that Jesus did were written there, they wouldn't fill up, the, you'd fill up more than all the books in the whole world. And we always think, though, that refers to the miracles and all the, the great things that Jesus did. But I, I also think that it refers to some of the things that he did in his spirit, to the ways that he was able to defeat those accusatory things that would come against him. You see, he was without sin. He didn't succumb to them. He didn't succumb to those things that would tell him, you know, that it's never going to be okay. That God's failed. Look at your life, it's a mess. He was tempted as we are. Because when we succumb to those things, and I say this with, with, I say this gently, but when we succumb to those things, we're agreeing with a lie. We're agreeing with a lie we're agreeing and we're giving assent to the enemy and it's missing the mark. And all of a sudden, things become quite introverted. They become quite introspective. And before we know it, we're, we're lost in ourselves and, and I don't know that there's any pain more deep than, than being lost in oneself. But Jesus was tempted in those very same things. He was tempted to be totally self-centered. He was tempted to be totally wrapped up in himself. And what did he do? He didn't go there. But he quoted his father. He said, no, but my dad says this about me. I was reading this week in uh, Zephaniah. And... uh, He sings over us with loud singing. So he sings over you with loud singing. I think it's chapter 3. Maybe. Who knows? Could be. I think it is. But he acts as our mediator. It says that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, that Jesus has become for us. He's become for us. He's our peace. He's our righteousness. He's our holiness. He's our redemption. He is those things for us. Secondly, the gospel is peace with God. It says in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the vehicle of grace and peace. One uh, one commentarian, he says that really grace is equals Jesus. Grace is synonymous with Jesus. Same thing. We think of grace as it's described in the Bible. Grace is is Jesus. Same thing. God's definition of of grace, God's unmerited, we know this, but you know what? I I need to hear it, so I'm going to say it. God's unmerited goodwill, freely given, and decisively effective in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Definition of grace. I'll read it again. God's unmerited, goodwill, freely given, decisively affected 
in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Take it to the bank. You can write checks on that. Peace. He says grace and peace. So there's grace. Solid as a rock. You can stand on it. It's yours. Unmerited. Totally dependable. Effectual in the cross. Peace is the state of wholeness that we get. The freedom that we get from the grace. So even when the storms are all around us, like we sang this morning, we still have 10,000 reasons to sing. Because even though your life might be falling down all around you, even though my life might be crumbling, I know this, that I have grace that comes from God, and I have a peace that passes not understanding, and it isn't a peace that the world knows, it's the peace that comes from the cross. You see, the breach that existed before we became Christians, the the breach that existed was a breach that we could not cross. It wouldn't have mattered. You take the world's world's greatest long jumper. I don't know who it is. But you take the world's, you're going to see the world's greatest long jumper in the Olympics this summer. It'd be like taking that world's greatest, the, the breach that we're talking about here is like taking the world's greatest long jumper and say, okay, if you can jump to the moon, you're good. doesn't matter. It's not going to work for you. The breach needed drastic measures. And, you know, the, the Bible says that we were at war with God. And so when we're at war, do we have peace? When we're at war with God, are we experiencing His grace? No. In fact, life without God is anything but grace-filled, anything but peaceful. The world talks about it, talks about peace all the time. But it's a peace that, that is unknown to them, to know the peace of God, unless, unless Jesus reaches into the darkness and saves us. We may not even be aware of it, that we were at war with God. I wasn't aware of it. I just knew my life was in turmoil. I didn't identify it as the fact that I was at war with God because I was separated from him. You see, Jesus' work was a finished work that we could not accomplish on our own. We're powerless to save yourself. Salvation, the salvation that, that Paul was preaching in Galatia, spoke of the interruption in history of this God-man Jesus. Like I said earlier, he empathized with us. He was tempted, didn't sin, perfect in every way. And he was the sacrifice. And because of his great love for us, God gave us his son. And Jesus, because of his trust in his father and his love, went to the cross and gave everything, gave his life for us on the cross, took our place, took the wrath that was due to us, took it upon himself, and, and in exchange, we get grace. We get peace. He suffered and he died on our behalf, and as a result of that, we have freedom. And again, you know, the Judaizers were afraid of the grace freedoms. They misunderstood it. Sam Storms talks about these three great freedoms that we have in the gospel. I love Sam Storms. If you've never read Sam Storms, you must read Sam Storms. Freedom from the condemnation of God's wrath. It says in Romans that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You're free from the condemnation that comes from not knowing Christ. Secondly, you're freed from the compulsion of sin. I remember before I was a Christian, I... There were things I wanted to do that were right that I just couldn't do them. I didn't have the ability. There were wrong things that I didn't want to do, but I couldn't help myself. And when I became a Christian, God filled me with the Spirit, put His Spirit in my life, and all of a sudden, I had the ability to say no to sin. I wasn't under compulsion to do it anymore. What a freedom that is. What a freedom. It's not a freedom to, to, to do stuff that I shouldn't be doing. It's a freedom to be able to do the things that please my Father. 
It's a freedom to have my joy and my happiness in Him. And thirdly, it's a freedom from the conscience of other people. So it's a freedom from those that will want to impose legalistic rules on me. Because I know that my security is found only in Christ. My security is not found in trying to please man. But my security is found in Him. What a freedom that is. I'll tell you at work, where I work, that's freedom. Just knowing, do I always succeed? No. But just knowing that I don't have to assent to the demands of other people, that's freedom. Thirdly, the gospel is about Jesus' lordship. It says in verse 6, I'm astonished. You meant no th- there's no thanksgiving here. Cut straight in. I'm astonished. I'm blown away. Like, w- what's going on? I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, not that there's another one. Like, Paul is, I, I can just imagine Paul just being completely like, what is happening up there? I can't get there right now. Oh, if I had him in front of me. But, you know, like he's, he's just this loving father who's completely blown away. And he's, he's upset with the Galatians, but he's more upset with the ones that are trying to come in and do the stuff they're doing. And he was so dead against legalism. He was so dead against anything that would rob people of those freedoms that I just talked about. Frank Viola has a a great definition of legalism. He says it's a tendency to regard as divine law things which God has neither required and nor forbidden in Scripture and the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform to them. So, I'll say it again. The tendency to regard as divine law things which God has neither required nor forbidden in the Scriptures, and the corresponding inclination, so you go along with that, things that God didn't say to do or to do, but the inclination, a legalist will look on other people with suspicion for their failure or their refusal to conform to those things that God didn't say to do or not. Legalists are people who believe that salvation is by grace alone, but, right, Sebastian, but, (laughs) salvation is by grace alone, but sanctification comes by, what, our own efforts and trying hard to be a, oh, I hate this one, a good Christian. Legalists tend to push their own standards onto everyone else. They're quick to judge other people's motives, thinking the worst of them and their intentions. And Paul was like just seething with anger against that stuff. They confuse obedience with trying to serve God in their own strength. So you can see how easily you can get into this cycle of, of failure. They demand other people do the things that they themselves would never carry out. They regard the sins of others as worse and more grievous than their own. And legalists can be meddlers. They always they, they want to they meddle in things. They don't want to solve anything. They want to meddle in stuff. And Paul was very aware of this next one because another branch of the same tree is ha- taking license. And so you have legalism over here, and then you, then you have, it's almost like a coin that has two sides. You have legalism, and then you have license over here. And so someone who takes license, you know, they're the ones that will live the way they want and skirt the lordship of Jesus and all that it means. And so I'm covered by grace. I can do what I want. I'm covered by grace. And they're, as you can see, they're missing the point because the point is about relationship with Jesus. It's not about doing or not doing People who take license are, are apt to justify behaviors by, like I said a minute ago, pulling the grace card. I'm free in Christ. When actually what they're free to do is to love Jesus. They're free to be freed from sin or the compulsion to sin. Does that mean we'll never sin? No. But it means if we fall, we get up. And they pull the don't judge me card. Oh, don't judge me. 
I'm free. Grace becomes license to live in the flesh. And for some, it becomes the license to silence their conscience too. You can see how, in a sense, taking license is almost more difficult to reverse and to, and to teach into than to be a legalist. The legalist lives as though um, he or she is God to everyone else. The person who takes license lives as if there's no God. But both of them are incompatible with being a Christian. The irony of it is, is the legalist doesn't know that he's a legalist and tends to view all non-legalists as ones taking license. And the one who takes license doesn't know that he or she takes license and tends to view all the um, people that aren't like him or her as legalists. It's pretty dire. It's blind spots, right? And so without the Holy Spirit's illumination, and Paul, this is what he's depending on, we have to trust the Holy Spirit to illuminate and to wake us up. And so if we're in situations where we know of people who are suffering in silence, in legalism, or people who are taking license, we have to pray that God's truth invades their life, that the light of the true gospel will be reflected in their lives. Truth is, we're all sin. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We all need Jesus to forgive us, to deliver us, and to keep us each day from both things that will defile us, acts of the flesh, things when we take license, we tend to do that. Isn't it funny how when people take license, we usually go towards the defilement of the flesh? That's where we usually end up going. Or from the self-righteousness of the flesh. Oh, I'm good. Do you go to prayer every week? Do you do this? Do you do that? We're set free from these things. The truth of the matter is they both bring pain and bondage. But our relationship to the Father is actually, get this, <coughs> Christ's relationship with the Father. It changes everything. If you can get that, if you understand that the relationship you have with the Father is actually Jesus' relationship with the Father. Do you think Jesus' relationship with the Father is intact and secure? The answer to that is yes. It's the most secure relationship in the whole wide world. The relationship between God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is the most secure of all relationships. And the fact is, is that if we're in Christ, we have the same type of strength in our relationship. Whether you feel it or not, it's true objectively. Now, it's great when subjectively we sense God's presence. It's great when subjectively we experience that. But it changes our vocabulary from, you know, I'm trying to be a better Christian. It changes that type of thinking when you say, you know, I'm just in relationship. To be honest, I don't think about being a better husband to Barb. I just love Barb. And out of my love for Barb, um, you know, I want to do things to please Barb. Sometimes I don't do so hot. But my love for her and her reception of my lover is not based on what I do and don't do. It's based on the fact that I, have, I love her. It's unconditional. It's not based on anything but my love for Christ is not based on anything but the cross. It's based on the fact that he's filled me with the Spirit. And so here's Paul. He's writing this book to the Galatians, his letter, and that's what he wants them to get. This is about trying to please man. It's like, I'm not trying to please man. I'm trying to please God. This message is from God. I'm an apostle not because I call myself an apostle. I'm an apostle because of that God has called me to be. You're a Christian because God has called you to be in love with Jesus. He's called you to love him. He's called you to be in relationship, active, two-way relationship with him. That's the essence of the book of Galatians. Now, it gets pretty hot. And over the next number of weeks, that becomes pretty apparent. But that's the heart of it. He recounts the history. He tells the theology, okay, this is what happened. 
The Old Testament leads to the New Testament. It's fulfilled in the cross. And lastly, this is how then you should live in relation to all of that. Let's stand together. And so I want to pray for me and for you. Time is gone and I want to respect our kids' workers, so. Father, I thank you for your life in us. Thank you that Jesus stepped into history. That history hinges on a manger. History hinges on a cross, a wooden cross. History hinges on Resurrection Sunday. History revolves around 33 years of his life on earth. Because of that, we have freedom. We have freedom. We're free to love you, Father. We're free to receive your love. We're free to be um, set apart from the compulsion to sin. Father, when we do fail, we can go to you. We can run to you. Father, would you help us? And if you're here this morning... And anything from this morning, but if there's if there's tinges of, of legalistic thought that's crept into your life, or if there's tinges of license that have crept into your life, or if you just feel like you know what I, I just need to know God's I, I'm gonna I want to pray specifically for you right now. If any of this stuff this morning has had an impact on your life, I just want you to stick your hand up. I want to pray specifically for you. We're not gonna single anybody out. I just want to be able to pray for you specifically. There's a number of hands. Father, I ask this morning that you would give us a revelation of your great love for us, your accepting love. That, Father, that it's found in, your love is founded in nothing but the cross of Jesus. There's nothing that can add to it, nothing that can make us any better. Nothing makes us better than your spirit. So, Lord, I pray right now that you'd fill us with your spirit. Would you help those in this room, God, that are experiencing difficulty Father, I pray that you would envelop them, that you would give them such a sense of your nearness, even though the, the, the uh, situations of their lives would seem to betray your word. Father, I pray it would be the other way around. Lord, I pray that they would, they would view the circumstances of their life, that I would view the circumstances of my life in, in light of your gospel, in light of the good news. Help us, O oh God. We're needy people. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen.